0: this is Amy Hill. Thanks for tuning in to Amy on the Hill, a podcast born out of Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, which says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is amy i'm so glad you decided to listen today if you're a regular listener you know that we are in our second week of a book study of timothy keller's book jesus the king and as part of this study we're also reading through the gospel of mark if you're new to the podcast today welcome please don't worry about the fact that you are not on schedule with our reading you're of course welcome to catch up to us if you want to read along We just completed our second week of reading, so you're not too far behind. Of course, you're also welcome to just listen in to the discussion. I think you will still find it edifying, even if you're not going to read along with us. Also, if at any point anyone is interested in viewing our reading schedule, you can always find it on my website, eneyonthehill.com, under the Resources section. Okay, so let's open in prayer and we'll jump into the discussion. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Our faith and our hope is in Christ alone, and it is by his blood that we have standing to come into your holy presence. So I don't know how else to start today other than by saying thank you. Thank you for making a way for us to come before you. Thank you for loving us and sending your son Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners. You didn't wait for us to get it together before you loved us. You loved us despite us and you call us to love others with the same crazy love with which you love us. This is a love not based on how others treat us. It's not a love based on whether or not we agree with others decisions politically or morally or financially. You've called us to love without contingency. But Lord, that is impossible for us apart from a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't love like that in our strength. So Lord, we ask that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to love like you. Use us to showcase your love to the people around us. 1 John 4.12 says no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The people in our lives can't see you with their physical eyes, but they will see you in us if we abide in you and your love is perfected in us. Lord, we can't do that in ourselves, so we ask you to do that in us. Please use the next 30 minutes or so to teach us in truth. As we often pray, we want to be sanctified by your word. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Listening today is just one small step toward that. Please help us to keep taking those small steps toward you. Despite everything in our culture vying to distract us and discourage us and count us out. Thank you for never counting us out. Help us not to count ourselves out. Help us to trust in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this week we read Mark chapters 2 and 3 from the Bible. And from Timothy Keller's book, Jesus the King, we read chapters three and four. So that, of course, will be the basis for our discussion today. Chapter three of Tim Keller's book is entitled The Healing, and chapter four is entitled The Rest. And wow, this was a great week. A lot of really convicting, really encouraging, and even some surprising truths were discussed in these two chapters. So I'm not going to waste Anytime getting right into it. Okay, so let's start with chapter 3 the healing Mark chapter 2 of the Bible Opens with a story that is probably familiar to you if you've spent any time of your life in church If however, uh, this is your first time hearing this story. I am so excited for you in some ways. I wish Uh, that I could see scripture through your fresh eyes. Because sometimes passages of scripture can become so familiar to those of us who have repeatedly read and heard these stories um, that we miss things. We miss details that someone who is reading scripture for the first time can see. So please don't think, if you're new to the study of God's word, that you have nothing to offer. Um, You have so much to offer. We need you here, and we are so thankful for your pure, uninfluenced perspective. That being said, Mark chapter 2 opens with the story of a paralyzed man whose four friends cut a hole in the roof of the place where Jesus was teaching because there was no more room. The friends could not... Get their paralyzed friend to Jesus because of the crowd. And so these friends cut a hole in the roof and let their paralyzed friend, who was laying on a bed, down through the hole. And the scripture says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytics, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Wow, right? Imagine that scene. <laughs> Imagine if you can. You know, the sawdust or the debris, whatever, falling from the roof as the friends were cutting that hole. Imagine everyone's eyes on Jesus to see what he would do. I was just at an event last weekend. I mentioned it in last week's podcast. I went to Houston, Texas, to attend a conference uh, at which several prominent leaders in Christian women's ministry were speaking. It was Beth Moore and Priscilla Shire and um, Christy Knuckles, who's um, a musician, Christine Kane was there, Jenny Allen, and some other people were there as well. And a few times there were occasions when many of the other women uh, who were attending the conference also were waiting in line to try to talk to the speakers, you know, to hug them or get selfies or whatever. Um, and everyone there was very cordial. People weren't fighting or anything, but it did give me. You know the sense of a crowd a crowd of people you know that prevented others from being able to get access as a side note um if you were wondering i didn't get a selfie or anything of course uh, those of you who know me personally know that i would have loved to meet beth moore in particular but it was pretty crowded and time was short so i decided against it um this past weekend but in any case Um, A crowd of people has real substance. People can come between you and the Savior. People might even be offended by your desperation for him. I thought about the other people in the room uh, when this hole was being cut. (laughs) and I was wondering if anyone was annoyed. I feel like I would have been annoyed. I don't know. I hate myself for that, but it's true. I probably would have thought it was rude. Uh, But anyway, Jesus isn't put off by it. Scripture says he saw their faith. As I've mentioned in uh, previous episodes of this podcast, I'm often thinking God is annoyed with me or will be annoyed with me. It's something that I have to battle. Uh, And maybe that's because I get annoyed with other people. You know, so I apply that same personality to God, even though that's not his personality at all. But, you know, these guys in the story weren't or didn't seem afraid of being an annoyance. Um, It seems that they had faith that Jesus would have compassion on their friend and that he would see his state of desperation and that he wouldn't be offended by their outrageous act to want to help him. And they were right. Again, the scripture says that Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, according to the scripture, this offends some of the scribes who were sitting there because they rightly thought to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? But I wonder if the paralytic and his friends were offended as well. Scripture doesn't say whether they were offended or not, but I want to give you a couple of hypothetical scenarios to consider. Scenario one, let's say you or your spouse lost a job. Scenario two, let's say someone you really, really care about, someone really dear to you is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Scenario three, let's say you were wrongly accused and convicted of a crime, and you were put in jail indefinitely. Or scenario four, what if like the friends of the man in this story, one of your close friends was paralyzed? In each of those hypothetical scenarios, is it scenario or scenario? (laughs) I feel like I'm using those pronunciations interchangeably. Anyway, in each of those hypothetical scenarios, I feel like that sounds a little more cool. Scenario, scenario, scenario. Um, but what would be the most important thing you would ask of God? What if you ask God for a new job or healing for your loved one or an exoneration from the courts or for a miracle that would enable your paralyzed friend to walk? And what if God, instead of answering Uh, your prayer the way you had hoped, instead answered by assuring you that your sins had been forgiven or that your loved one's sins had been forgiven, would that offend you? What do you think? Do you think that perhaps the paralyzed man and or some of his friends were offended at Jesus's initial response? Regarding the paralyzed man, In the biblical account, Keller wrote, If this man were from our time and place, I believe he would have said something like this Um, Thanks, (laughs) but that's not what I asked for. I'm paralyzed. I've got a more immediate problem here. But in fact, Jesus knows something the man doesn't know that he has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. Keller goes on to acknowledge. That, of course, everyone who is paralyzed naturally wants with every fiber of his being to walk. And similarly, in our hypothetical scenarios, everyone who's lost a job would want a new job. Everyone whose loved one had been diagnosed with cancer would want their loved one to be healed. And everyone who was wrongly convicted of a crime would want vindication. So if you're thinking Keller is teaching that it's wrong to want those things or to feel grief... Or sorrow that's definitely not what he's teaching I'm going to pull a quote from an author by the name of Jerry Bridges who wrote a book called trusting God even when life hurts and this is an excellent book by the way my best friend Kelly McFarland who joined me on the podcast several weeks ago has been recommending this book for years and I'm finally just getting around to reading it but it's a great exploration of the sovereignty or control of God especially in difficult times when it can be difficult to understand uh, and difficult to trust God. So anyway, in chapter three of Trusting God, Bridges writes, Trusting God does not mean she does not suffer grief, that her heart does not ache. It means that in the midst of her heartache and grief, she can say something to the effect of, Lord, I know you were in control of this dreadful event. I do not understand why you allowed it to happen, but I trust you. He continues, Just as we must learn to obey God one choice at a time, we also must learn to trust God one circumstance at a time. Trusting God is not a matter of my feelings, but of my will. I never feel like trusting God when adversity strikes, but I can choose to do so even when I don't feel like it. That act of the will, though, must be based on belief, and belief must be based on truth. So again, it's not wrong to want relief and experience extreme sorrow when we walk through a difficult time. Think about it. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he knew he was going to be arrested and crucified, said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here. And watch with me that's out of uh, Matthew chapter uh, 26 by the way if you're wondering Um, and then as he prayed to the father he said my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will so even Jesus here is praying for relief and experiencing extreme sorrow Uh, but even so he chooses to trust God and submit ultimately to his will. So what Keller is teaching is not that it's wrong to desperately want relief or to feel extreme sorrow or grief over some circumstance, or you know, if your friend was paralyzed or you lost your job, or any of the um, hypothetical situations that we talked about. But what he is saying is that we have an issue when we rest all of our hopes in this circumstance, whatever it is, being made right or when we rest all of our hopes on anything other than Jesus. Okay, so before we move on to chapter four, there were a few other points about chapter three, the healing that I wanted to discuss. For instance, Keller argues that the roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. And he gives the example of an article he once read by an author named Cynthia Heimel in uh, The Village Voice. She wrote in some kind of a periodical called The Village Voice. And in this article, Heimel wrote about her experience working with actors and actresses who, after struggling to become famous made it, they finally made it and they became famous. And according to Heimel, achieving what they had been longing for had the opposite effect of what you would think. Instead of being satisfied, they were even more unhappy. She said that was because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Wow. I wonder if anything like that has ever happened to you. I know it has happened to me or maybe like me. There are things in your life that you're still longing for, things that you're resting your hopes on, or things that you're building your identity on besides Jesus. Think about it. What is that for you? What are you striving for? What do you want the most? Why do you feel discontent right now? What do you wish would happen? What is the one thing you really, really hope never happens? Where is your security? Keller explains that the Bible says our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. We're saying, if I have that deepest wish, then everything will be okay. We've made our wish into our savior. But according to Keller, Jesus says, you see, if you have me, I will actually fulfill you. I'm the only savior that can do that. But it's hard to figure that out. Keller writes, many of us first start going to God, going to church because we have problems and we're asking God to give us a little boost over the hump so that we can get back to saving ourselves, back to pursuing our deepest wish. But almost always when we first go to Jesus saying, this is my deepest wish, his response is that we need to go a lot deeper than that. I wonder if that has been true for you. I wonder if this has been true for you in the way that it's been true for me because this has been true for me. So often it is in the most difficult circumstances that I experience the most healing and exceedingly effective times of sanctification in my life. Um, and for those of you who may be new to the theological term sanctification, that just means in the words of the well-known theologian and pastor John Piper, um, sanctification means progressively becoming like Jesus, gradually becoming like Jesus or becoming holy, becoming conformed into the image of Christ. Little by little over time from conversion till Jesus comes back or you die, you are in the process of sanctification, being sanctified, becoming holy. So again, for me, It's often in the most difficult circumstances that I experience exceedingly effective times of sanctification in my life, which always, in retrospect, make that difficult time worthwhile. While I'm experiencing a difficult time, it's often hard to have that perspective, but on the other side of it, I can often see the mercy and goodness of God in it and where I can't and know it's still there. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, it says, Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Did you catch that? God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Many of you are probably familiar with the 23rd Psalm. A lot of you can probably even recite it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you ever thought about what that means? The Lord is my shepherd. What does a shepherd's rod and staff do? Well, I looked it up. (laughs) According to an article I write on Ligonier Ministries website, which is the teaching fellowship of the well-known theologian R.C. Sproul, In the ancient world, shepherds carried a rod to club predators and drive them away, and a staff to guide their sheep to keep them in line lest they go astray. Such guidance could be painful to the sheep at times, as they were poked and prodded to be kept on the straight and narrow. Likewise, the discipline of the Lord can seem uncomfortable, But it is a comfort to us because, as Augustine writes, it shows that God is mindful of us. It seems crazy that something that causes us pain can be a comfort to us. But I can personally testify that I have found this to be profoundly true in my life. Jesus asked, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk? To piggyback off Jesus's question, I think a question that we need to ask ourselves is not only which is easier, but also which is more important? Which one lasts? Which one has eternal consequences? Because our physical, earthly bodies are failing. They are corruptible and will eventually be swallowed up by the incorruptible. Our careers can't go with us if we lost a job. That's definitely important, but it's not of eternal importance. If God wants to do something in our lives through a difficult circumstance, are we willing to allow him access to do that in faith, knowing he is for us, believing. He is working all things together for our good, knowing he does not let a single tear fall in vain and that he will redeem every minute of suffering for his glory. There's a Christian music artist that I really like named Lecrae, and Lecrae talks about this tension in one of his popular songs entitled Boasting. Uh, I'm going to read you the second verse of, Of that song it's a rap song so I'm tempted to rap it but I'll spare you I do I do want to recommend though that you look it up online and listen to it again the song is called boasting and it's by the rapper Lecrae and it goes like this tomorrow's never promised but it is we swear think we're holding our own just a fistful of air God has never been obligated to give us life If we fought for our rights, we'd be in hell tonight. Mere sinners owed nothing but a fierce hand. We never loved him. We pushed away his pierced hands. I rejected his love, grace, kindness, and mercy. Dying of thirst, yet willing to die thirsty. Eternally worthy. How could I live for less? Patiently, you turned my heart away from selfishness. I volunteer for your sanctifying surgery. I know the Spirit's purging me of everything that's hurting me. Remove the veil from my darkened eyes. So now every morning I open your word and see the sun rise. I hope in nothing, boast in nothing, only in your suffering. I live to show your glory, dying to tell your story. The line I really love from that song is the one that says, I volunteer for your sanctifying surgery. I know the Spirit's purging me of everything that's hurting me. Sanctifying surgery, that is such a good word. Because surgery is painful, but it's healing. It requires a skilled physician, someone who can get to the core of what is making us sick and remove it. A surgeon doesn't get a kick out of cutting you open, but he knows it's what you need if you're going to live your fullest life. Like the paralyzed man who needed more than just the ability to walk. We need more than our deepest wish. We need, in the words of Tim Keller, someone who can go deeper than that. Someone who will use his claws like the great lion Aslan in the voyage of the Dawn Treader to lovingly and carefully pierce our self-centeredness and remove the sin that enslaves and distorts even our beautiful longings. And Keller continues, we will discover that in the process of dealing with what we thought were our deepest wishes, Jesus has revealed an even deeper, truer one beneath, and it is for Jesus himself. He will not just have granted that true deepest wish. He will have fulfilled it. Okay, so on to chapter four, The Rest. This is the chapter of the book in which Keller explores Jesus' outrageous claim that he has not come to reform religion, but to end it. Jesus has come to end religion if you read along this week you'll remember that in mark chapters 2 and 3 jesus seems to buck the system as far as the religious rules of the sabbath on sabbath jesus's disciples were picking and eating heads of grain which the pharisees considered a violation of the sabbath because the pharisees said the disciples were reaping grain and another time on the sabbath jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand and so As we got into a little last week, we again noted the difference between religion and the gospel. You'll remember that religion operates as advice on how you should live in order to be right with God, but the gospel is the good news that Jesus has done everything you needed to do in order to make you right with God. In response to our reading, a friend wrote in this week to say too many Christians treat Christianity as advice, whether giving it or taking it, and not as good news. The good news is that we are free in Christ. That's right. So for Christians, we don't study and obey the law in order to get right with God. We study and obey the law of God because we believe God's way is the best way. Because we believe God loves us, and he is wiser than us, and his way leads to life. Because we love God, and we long to demonstrate our love to him by living our lives as a living sacrifice, as a testimony to his goodness. Keller puts it this way, In the life of Christians, the law of God, though still binding on them, functions in a completely different way. It shows you the life of love you want to live before God who has done so much for you. God's law takes you out of yourself. It shows you how to serve God and others instead of being absorbed with yourself. So as my friend so appropriately observed, the good news is that we are free in Christ. We are free in Christ. Keller points out that when we live our lives according to religion instead of the gospel, there's a work underneath our work that we really need rest from. And that is the work of self-justification. He says most of us work and work, trying to prove ourselves, to convince God, others, and ourselves that we're good people. That work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. Keller then goes on to say that at the end of his great act of creation, the Lord said it is finished and he could rest. On the cross, at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus said it is finished and we can rest. He has lived the life we should have lived. He has died the death we should have died. If we rely on Jesus' finished work, we know that God is satisfied with us we can be satisfied with life. Some of you might think, great, I'm off the hook. Cool. Jesus took care of everything. So I guess I can live my life on my terms to that. I would say not so fast. Uh, Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and bear it throughout scripture. We are told that following Jesus, Sincerely following Jesus means to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others. But the difference is that's not what saves us. That's not what justifies us. That's not what gives us worth. Remember, Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus' disciples were questioned as to why Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In closing out our discussion of this chapter, the rest, I'm going to read from the book at the bottom of page 50 and onto the top of page 51. When Jesus says he is not coming for the righteous, he does not mean that some people don't need him. The clue to what Jesus does mean is his reference to himself as a physician. You go to a doctor only when you have a health problem that you can't deal with yourself. When you feel you can't get better through self-management. What do you want from a doctor? Not just advice, but intervention. You don't want a doctor to simply say, yes, you sure are sick. You want some medicine or treatment. Jesus calls people righteous, who are in the same position spiritually as those who won't go to a doctor. Righteous people believe they can heal themselves, make themselves right with God by being good or moral. They don't feel the need for a soul physician, someone who intervenes and does what they can't do themselves. Jesus is teaching that he has come to call sinners, those who know they are morally and spiritually unable to save themselves. Because the Lord of the Sabbath said it is finished, we can rest from religion forever. So we are getting ready to close, but before we do, there was one last thing I wanted to mention over the past few years. I've started observing the practice of Lent by participating in some type of fast. I've also started fasting at other different points throughout the year, and this was not something I did growing up in uh, a Protestant church. Many of my Catholic friends and family members observed Lent, uh, but fasting wasn't really something We talked much about, as far as I can remember, uh, in the church that I attended. But in recent years, in taking up this practice, i found it to be a tremendous blessing. You may even remember from our reading in Mark chapter 2, verse 20 this week, Jesus said that the days would come when his followers would fast. And the days he was referring to are the days we live in today, the days after his death and resurrection, but before his return. And so... This is a practice I believe we should be undertaking to understand and observe. And since we are coming up on the season of Lent, the most well-known fasting observance that I know of in our culture, I wanted to mention this so you can begin thinking about if and how you would like to observe Lent this year. As we've been saying, this isn't something that would justify you before God. You don't earn points with God for this. And Mark, Chapter 2, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Likewise, God's commands are for our good because of the finished work of Christ. The law of God is not to be kept by us in order to justify ourselves to God. Instead, in our obedience, we are blessed. The Bible also says that obedience is a way for us to show our love to God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me. You'll obey what I command. But in addition to that, obedience guarantees a blessing for us. So don't participate in let in order to earn your way to God. If you're in Christ, that work has been finished. If you decide to participate, you don't have to participate, but if you decide to participate, participate in faith as a demonstration of your love for God and your belief that God has purposed to bless you through it okay so be thinking about that you may want to fast from media from some kind of food from shopping seek the lord on what that would be ash wednesday is coming up it's march 1st this year so if you want to start on ash wednesday you can do that i do plan to start on ash wednesday but i usually do 40 days straight i know some of my catholic friends take off on the weekends you do it however you feel led Or don't do it if you don't feel led. I just wanted to mention this on the podcast today, again, because Lent is coming up. And I wanted to give you a chance to think and pray about what you want to do, if anything. Okay? So next week we are going to read chapters 5 and 6 of Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. And out of the Bible, we are going to read Mark chapters 4 and 5. Again, that's chapters 5 and 6 out of Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. And out of the Bible... We're going to read Mark chapters four and five. As always, if at any point you forget what we're scheduled to read this week, you can always check it out under the resources section of my website, amyonthehill.com. Also, please don't forget to write me with your questions, comments, and or thoughts about our reading this week. Please write me or send me voice messages so I can incorporate your thoughts and comments into the podcast as well. Finally, as we close today, please receive this benediction from Numbers chapter 6, Verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.